You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Okay, I think we can make a start. For those of you who don't know me and for listeners of the podcast, my name's Sandhya Bahuja and I'm the Director of the Institute for International Law and the Humanities. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I am speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And um, I pay my respect to their elders and also acknowledge their laws. And I think that's a fitting acknowledgement from the perspective of what we're here to do today, which is to launch a book and uh, make a podcast episode. So joining me in today's endeavour are my colleague, Professor Sean McVeigh, who is also from the Melbourne Law School and whose books include The Jurisprudence of Jurisdiction and with Shauna Dorset, the book Jurisdiction. And of course, our featured author, Kate Store. So Kate is the author of this book, International Status in the Shadow of Empire, Nauru and the Histories of International Law, published by Cambridge University Press last year. And what a handsome book it is. Um, Kate is currently the Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Law Faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney. And before that, she was at Glasgow Law School. And before that, Sean and I, and also Gary Simpson, had the immense pleasure of having Kate work with us as a doctoral student. Kate was an incredible doctoral student and a very highly decorated one. She won the Melbourne Law School's prize for the best doctoral thesis in 2017 and she won the university's Chancellor's Medal for the best thesis overall in the university in 2018 and that thesis is the basis of this book. But like the thesis, the book has also begun to be highly decorated and was recently awarded the 2021 Penny Pether Early Career Researcher Award by the Law, Literature and Humanities Association of Australasia. So if we stuck gold circles on book covers in the same way that we do on wine bottles, there'd be no more cover visible of this book. So International Status in the Shadow of Empire is a masterful and beautifully crafted work which tells the story of the island of Nauru and international law. And the book really functions as both an original and comparative an original and compelling narrative history of the changing international status of Nauru from the early 1880s to the late 1960s, but also as an unorthodox history of international law told from the apparent margins of the international legal order. And the thing that it does that's so exciting is not so much to locate Nauru in international law, but to reveal Nauru as a generative site of international law. I hope, Kate, you uh, don't think that I'm misrepresenting it in saying that, but I think that's a particularly powerful element of it for me. So it's not a story of international law made in the north and applied in the south or even made in the north and resisted or vernacularised in the south, but it's a story of an international law crafted through practices which happen in the putative margins from in a sense where it journeys to the equally putative centre. So Kate tells this unexpected story by not starting with the conceptual and theoretical accounts of international law generated from the north or in the north um, and watching them travel. And I think that Doing that is a very familiar move to those of us who work in the field of international law. I've done it myself. Um, but by starting with a different question, by starting with the question of administrative form or with questions of apparently mundane processes of bureaucratic rule as they were practised in the South, and then watching them closely as the status of Nauru changed from trading post to protectorate to colony, to trust territory, to mandate, to sovereign nation state. Um, by starting with the how of administration and linking it to the how question of authority, Kate is able to describe in detail how some people, countries, 
empires and entities were able to assert and maintain authority over others in ways that endure despite radical changes in status, including independence or statehood. So in essence, Kate is telling a different story of both imperial rule and of international law and of the continuities between them. Than the, and a different story than the ones we might be more used to reading and writing in the field of international law. And in doing this, it really, the book really makes an outstanding contribution to the history and theory of international law. And if you haven't already read it, I would highly recommend it to you, but not only to read it and put it on your bookshelf, but to read it slowly, because I think it's a book that really repays a slow rate, rate reading. So, Kate, um, as we foreshadowed in our planning for this launch and discussion of your book, I wonder if for those people uh, who are listening or who are here who haven't yet had the chance to read the book, I wonder if you could, I could ask you to take 10 minutes or so to give a, a, a substantive account of the book and the research questions which drive it. And after that, I'll um, invite Sean to ask you a couple of questions and I might add some. And there should also be time for people who are here with us today to ask questions toward the end. So please um, prepare your questions as well if you'd like to. So, Kate, thank you very much for writing this book and thank you for telling us all about it now. Thank you, Sandhya. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming along. It's Great to have an opportunity to talk to this community about this work. Um, I too am on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. This land uh, is Indigenous land. Sovereignty has never been ceded and I pay my respect to elders past and present. Um, I'm going to take around 10 minutes to summarise this book because in some respects it's not a book that can be summarised in a snappy phrase and so I hope that you'll bear with me uh, and uh, walk with me as I construct this story in, in as, uh, as brief a way as I can. So the story of Nauru is commonly told as a parable of dystopia, whether of environmental collapse due to aggressive phosphate mining under international control prior to independence in 1968 or of economic and political corruption following independence. This book departs from the premise that the history of Nauru is not anomalous to the international order, but deeply symptomatic of it. The history it tells began as a response to a deceptively simple question. How did Nauru, a single coral atoll in the Western Pacific, home of the Nauruan people who at the time of independence numbered just over 6,000, become the Republic of Nauru in 1968, the smallest state in the world by population, third smallest by area. But the book developed over time into a response to a more specific question. What might a close reading of the history of imperial administration in Nauru reveal about the transition from 19th century European imperialism to 20th century international ordering that histories of international law focused on the received centres of international legal formation do not. The answer given in the book takes the form of a narrative of four shifts in the international status of Nauru, from German protectorate in 1888 to mandate of the British Empire under Australian administration in 1920 to UN Trust Territory in 1947, again under Australian administration, and to sovereign state in 1968. Now the broad strokes of this history are now reasonably well known, but what this book does is map that story of shifting international status onto the corresponding changes in administrative form at the local level that accompanied each of these shifts in formal status. So the intention of the book was very much to put to one side the contemporary distinction between international law on the one hand and constitutional and administrative law on the other. 
That distinction works to obscure many aspects of the historical tension between older forms of imperial authority and of sovereign authority and newer forms of international authority that characterised so much of the late 19th and early 20th century history. That tension between forms of authority produced a really fertile period of legal experimentation that reveals much about the enduring nature of imperial authority and its relationship to public and private power. Bearing all of this in mind, what the book does is construct a finely grained history of the relationship between international status and administrative form in the Nauruan case as a frame through which to reconsider how the system of formerly equal sovereign states evolved in continuation of European imperial forms of the 19th century. Taking the view from Nauru, the transition from 19th century imperial administration through to the universalization of the statist paradigm of self-determination in the 1960s does not unfold as a conceptually driven or even particularly ordered process. It unfolds rather as a process of experimentation in imperial administration driven by commercial, domestic and geopolitical imperatives and often only retrospectively and thinly justified through reference to concepts of international law. I really wanted to hold the self-justification of public authority at the centre of the story and in particular, the way in which public authority is normalised through structures of administration and bureaucracy that endure over time and work to discipline public and private power as much as they are disciplined by that power. That desire to focus on public authority came from my own experience working in government prior to studying law, as well as from working in large organisations like universities and big law firms. Administration is not a particularly fashionable thing to focus on these days. It doesn't enliven the attention as much as concepts of empire or capital. But administrative forms do so much of the work in legitimising relations of power that would otherwise be recognised as exploitative or even violent. The account of imperial administration that I construct in the book owes much to Max Weber's work on legitimization and bureaucratization. For Weber, the bureaucratization of public and private power was as fundamental to the emergence of European modernity as the capitalist mode of production and the democratic states. Weber's insistence that bureaucratic forms of relation, once established, do not allow allow power relations to shift, but permit only of further bureaucratization, forms the golden thread that runs through the book. In following this thread of bureaucratization from 18, the 1880s through to the late 1960s, the book makes two arguments. The first can be stated quite simply, as international status shifts, administrative form accretes. Throughout the four shifts in international status that the book tracks, from protectorate to mandate to trust territory to sovereign state, the form of administration under which Nauru was governed underwent a process not of structural change but of internal bureaucratisation and external restatement according to the progressive vocabularies of each period. So a simple administrative outline originally sketched in 1888 by a company, by a Hanseatic trading company from Hamburg, the Jaluit Gesellschaft, in a deal that it struck with the Bismarckian Reich to extend protectorate status to Nauru, was progressively bureaucratised over time. Administrative tasks and practices intensified they were restated, they were renamed, but the structural form in which they organised, they were organised, held firm. So this story of bureaucratisation over time leads toward a sober critique of the statist paradigm of decolonisation that took hold in the mid-20th century. The final shift in the international status of Nauru from UN trust territory to sovereign states is recast not as a break with, 
but as a stage in the bureaucratization of an imperial form of administration established in the late 19th century with one singular goal in mind, to facilitate the outward flow of natural resources from Nauru. Chapter six, which is the conclusion of the book, considers the post-independence trajectory of the Republic of Nauru, that dystopic fable that is so often retold, and the contemporary reversions of the Nauruan state to autocratic rule in light of this argument. The second argument the book makes is that this relationship between international status and imperial form becomes visible precisely through centering an apparently marginal or anomalous place in an account of the transition from imperial to international ordering. Centering Nauru trains attention on ad hoc administrative practices in the putative margins of the international order rather than on conceptual or doctrinal debates in the metropolitan centres of international law. So the choice to construct the narrative around a place habitually regarded as marginal or anomalous was therefore both a methodological and a political one. What emerges from the book, I hope, is an appreciation of the difference between the history of international law as a mode of conceptual reasoning and the irreducibly multiple histories of international law as manifest in place in the ad hoc forms of relation that develop in the gaps between ideal concepts and local material circumstances. So the book concludes that if the structural governance issues for which the contemporary Nauruan state is now chronically indicted are accepted, and those issues you will be familiar with, they include failure of democratic institutions, lack of motivation to preserve wealth for the future, lack of machinery for enforcing accountability and transparency, failure of leaders to learn the principles of good governance, shortage of people with appropriate skills, then it must also be accepted that those issues were historically produced by European imperial and international interventions. So a major political objective of the book is to dispel any notion that the now notorious failures of the Republic of Nauru, whether environmental, economic or political, originated with Nauruan mismanagement of state following the withdrawal of Australian control in 1968. I argue instead that those issues are directly continuous with imperial forms of relation entrenched under German, then British, then Australian rule. Given the circumstances of its creation then, the history of Nauru is better understood as a remarkable story of communal survival than one of state failure. But tropes of Nauruan irresponsibility and corruption are habitually invoked across the political spectrum in Australia. Both sides of politics use this line when it suits them. But when severed from the imperial history that I construct in this book, these tropes work to reiterate much older ideologies of Australian racial supremacy in the Western Pacific. So to wind up the summary, I really, uh, I emphasise in the book and I want to emphasise here that this book is not a Nauruan history and it's not offered as such. This is a history of empire. I don't purport to represent Nauruan perspectives on or modes of resistance to the imperial and international interventions considered in the book. This is very much a, a narrative about how imperial authority is constituted and how it understands itself to have been constituted. The importance of Nauruan accounts of Nauruan history remain paramount. The intention of this book, rather, was to trace the operation in the Pacific region and beyond of a still evolving imperial project of which Australia is itself a part, a project that has worked not only through categorical differentiations in international status, not only through the extraction of resources and labour via ever more complex economic and financial arrangements, but also through accretions of administrative form that are all too often presumed to be neutral or inevitable. Thank you, Thank you very much, Kate, for um, a, a, an absolutely amazing brief summary of what is quite an extended argument in relation to your book. So we'll open up um, 
the floor to questions in a minute. Um, I'd just like to begin by acknowledging that I'm also speaking on from Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nations and acknowledge elders past and present. And uh, I'd also like to um, say hello to all the many people who are attending um, this launch, many of whom are in Illa and many of whom I haven't seen for several years, it feels. Um, so, Kate, I have, a, I have a couple of questions, um, and they're really, there's a follow-up question, um, and I suppose um, I wanted to draw out some, a couple of things which you hinted at. In, in the way that you present your arguments, um, you say that it's, you're not able to encapsulate, encapsulate what you're doing, but in fact, you, you do present two streams of thought, one of which says, follow the authority of the administrative form, and the other is, look at what they're taking and see how those fit together. So I wondered if you could just say a little bit about how you join those two elements together, because in the normal or in the more usual accounts of capital and capital flow and colonialism, it's commodity which drives things. And you've offered an account of administration which drives things. So I wonder if you could say just a little bit about your, your choice and how that helps you think as a person of law, as opposed to, say, a political economist or a critic. Thanks, John. It's it's a complex question, and I think in some respects it points towards the question of, well, is this a Marxist story or is it not a Marxist story? And if it's not a Marxist story, how is it not a Marxist story? And I, you know, I'm really honest when I say that my interest in administration comes from being an administrator and watching the way that structural forms affect the way people relate to each other. Uh, and also, and I have an interest in the way that administration, whether we consider it as corporate administration or public administration on both sides of that power divide, how it uh, is not, it, it provides a lot of friction in the relationship between the commodity form and labour, between capital and the commodity form. I, I, I don't think we can remove the tale of administration from the story of empire and capital. And too often I think that if we go straight to the political economy story, we forget the bit in the middle, which is how those power relations are authorised and maintained um, at a very practical day-to-day -day level. And the story is often public authority. And public authority is not just um, a tool for implementing the imperatives of capital, it works both ways. There are forms that are constructed through administration that endure over time and don't shift even if the imperatives of capital would like them to. So I felt that I wanted to train attention on the way that public authority is constructed, even as it is constructed in a mutually constitutive way with private power, with power, you know, those two things are mutually constructed. But at the time, it is so often the case that public officials do not understand themselves to be just implementing the imperatives of capital. And so I had an underlying political goal, which was to, through constructing what is a very painstaking story to show how it is that people in public official roles are part of larger power structures that they don't necessarily see themselves and don't necessarily uh, see as being justified in such a way as to obscure the inherent exploitation and violence that is at the heart of the relationships that these structures authorise. So I was very interested in my own experience, um, having worked for the UNDP Nauru and coming home to think about what it was that I had just taken part in and how I had taken part in it so unthinkingly and so openly thinking this is a publicly official role. I'm working for the Republic of Nauru with UNDP money and 
got home and thought, well, what was it that I actually just did? And the a lot of the questions that led me to lead to write this book came from that personal sense of disquiet. Thank you. Uh, Sandhya, did you want to ask a question? I just wanted to ask a follow-on question from that, Kate, because I think Sean um, has put his finger on something really interesting and your answer makes me wonder whether there's something politically uh, there's more there's more hope in the answer or the approach that you take than if we asked a question which begins and ends with capital and commodity because if we start with capital and commodity all roads lead to revolution but that's a very hard road to hoe and if we start with administration and the question of how forms of administration enact and authorise things that they may or may not be fully aware of, um, it seems that there's more potential for state actors to do something with the state form, the promise of which has been so often betrayed since the end of formal colonialism. And I, and hearing your, reading your work and hearing you talk, I, I feel like it offers it offers the lowly bureaucrat some space to manoeuvre, actually, in a way that the story of big capital doesn't. That's an interesting read that we did not discuss in our prior discussions of what <laughs> we would talk about this hour, um, which is fine. Sorry, it's a nice difficult question. Going off. No, no, I think it's a... Uh, in some respects, I think this leads towards the, well, what now question with the end of the book. It's like, well, what do we do with this now? And I think that you're right in that I didn't, the book has been taken to be a closed loop, that it leads nowhere in saying that sovereign statehood is not a way out of imperialism, that it offers no hope. But I don't see that to be the case. I think that the book opens a space for understanding sovereignty or understanding autonomy or self-determination in ways other than reconstructing a particular form of, of authority or public authority. I think it offers a new way of doing it. It says, no, don't do administration because this is what's going to happen. There are other ways of organising. And so it does in some respects come back to uh, opening a space for not simply mimicking forms of public authority in order to be recognised, but in thinking differently about how power and communal power can be constituted. So I think that um, that's certainly a space that I hoped was left open in my critique of, of the way statehood became the only form of decolonised power that was allowed from the 20th century onward. Thank you. So if, if we were to just to follow that question a little bit then, the, so your book is, is not only a narrative history, but it's also a training manual in the Illa tradition. So is there something about the history writing which enabled you to work through those questions in a way that's a conceptual or critical analysis? Um, might not have or was was less productive for you? Mm, I, hmm. This writing, I mean, I could have just written an article that wrote the conclusions in a very upfront way. And, you know, there were some days where I think, why, why didn't I do that? That would have been an easier way to make this point. But in some respects, I think that would be a more disposable way to make the point. I wanted to use um, the preponderance of historical documents that were produced by empire and by departments, by the Department of Territories, by the mandatory authorities to say, look, this is not, I'm not making a, um, a, a political assertion based on theory, like this is a very, very finely constructed source-based argument I'm making and I'm leading towards a conclusion that perhaps has been made elsewhere, but I'm trying to convince people who don't already agree with these um, the theories that might be consonant with the conclusions that I'm drawing. So I felt the need to do it this way. Um, I have an interest in the way that 
public authority documents itself. I think that that's, you know, the, the, uh, there's work being done on this about the way, you know, violence archives itself in the process in, in a kind of pathological way. And I think the Australian state does that uh, as much as any other state. I have an interest because I have myself worked in these jobs where you're producing paperwork for God knows what posterity. It's a mystery. And so I'm kind of always interested in finding those documents. And, you know, it was in the lower levels of the UN Trusteeship Council or of a mandatory authority or a report that was made or German, you know, the letters of German companies back to back to the company officials or to the board. And that kind of documentation, I think, is um, incredibly revealing. So the book ends up being this very dense account drawn from those kinds of sources. And in some respects, I wanted it to be a resource that if somebody wanted to go back and say, well, what was happening in terms of corporate imperialism in the Western Pacific between 1884 and 1888, that the book gives you a pretty good idea. I didn't want it to... um, be a snappy disposable article. I wanted it to be an enduring work that could be used for a number of different purposes and to provide the source documentation to do that. Um, if you know, So I wanted it to endure over time. Yeah, thank you. I think, um, Sandhya, you want to open the floor to questions now and uh, particularly from the administrators in the audience. <laughs> yeah, people should think... Um, of their questions and uh, raise their Zoom hand or uh, I think raising your Zoom hand is better. But, um, Kate, I just wanted to say that the response that you gave to Sean about the question of how you wrote your history in a sense reminds me of a great tradition of those works which take the South very seriously. So there's something about your introduction that reminds me of Jennifer Beard's prologue or introduction to um uh, my mind's gone blank what's the title uh the political economy of desire um in the sense of taking the south very seriously and really taking the time to step through uh your position in relation to what it is you're writing but it also reminds me of peter fitzpatrick's book law and the state in papua new guinea and Tony Angi's book, which of course memorably begins with his work on the Nauru Commission, and the way that the um, that Tony Angi's work on the Nauru Commission causes him to ask, how can international law provide no answer to this problem? And what's interesting with your book is, rather than using Nauru as a launching point, you stay with it, and I think that in that staying with it. Um, you've produced something that's extremely unusual and a really uh, a really extraordinary contribution to the international legal literature. And I think people will go back to it. So often we read an introduction and conclusion and we don't read the middle of books. I mean, we must admit that, well, I will admit that I sometimes do that because you need to get the gist and the middle is really an evidentiary mass that is often not read. But I think your book is one of those books where the detail of each of the moments you trace of the transformations in Nauru's status and the transformations or the accretion of forms is uh, a model of how to do a how question in so many ways that people would um, do well to attend to the way you've done it. I wanted to ask you a question about writing, but I noticed that Alice Palmer has her hand up. So I'll take Alice's question and then uh, if there's if we have the chance, I'll ask you the writing question. Alice, would you like to ask the question in audio form or would you like to put your camera on? I'll, I'll do it in audio form if that's okay. Um, thank you so much, Kate. That's um, I'm not sure that anyone uh, can do a great job of summarising such an extraordinary time um, in so few words, but that was um, very enlightening. And I think one of the things for me, I think I wanted to, to draw on what Sandia was saying about that idea of hope and what um, you were also saying about the sort of practical nature of the administrative form And then also think about Nauru as it is now and the fact that that administrative form is not going anywhere. Um, 
and and I so I, I can't I can't help but but still want to think that there's something that can be done with it um, and something that can be done well. And I, I'm just wondering, essentially, do you see international law or international the international administrative form um, having any capacity uh, to to be drawn in by the Nauruan community in its in its sort of as you say its its trajectory of survival can can it do anything good thanks Alice I I, I think my honest answer is I don't think that's my question to answer I think that that's a question for the Nauruan people to determine um I an observation that can be made is that when the phosphate as the primary source of revenue um, was exhausted or is now in a phase of secondary mining, the Nauruan state has essentially been forced to find other singular forms of revenue to replace that revenue stream. That's essentially what has characterised um, the survival of the Republic for the last 20 years is this search for a singular source of revenue that will replace that stream of income. That's how the state functions. And that is um, in some respects a remarkable story of ingenuity. Like the, yeah, I mean, the, the reopening of the offshore detention centre, the use of fishing licences, the selling of visas, you know, I mean, it's, it's a remarkable story. The selling of the sovereign vote itself in international organisations has become a resource in some ways. So I, I struggle to see how, um, how tinkering around the edges of the constitution as it currently is um, or through particular forms of emphasis in international intervention can structurally change that pattern. I, I, I struggle to see how that would occur. Um, but I end in 1968 for a really a real political reason, which is that I think that the... Um, the Nauruan community has every right to determine that for themselves, what constitutes a valid form of authority. And I think that that's not a question. I think that the non-imperial move would be saying, would, would be to um, hold back from thinking that uh, Australian administrators, Australian international lawyers, Australian constitutional lawyers have the right answer to that question. That, to me, is a problematic position. Um, so, you know. Uh, I just saw Cheryl put her hand up, which is the thing that I was expecting next. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Kate. Can I can I go, Sandhya? Of course. Thanks. And look, I wasn't prompted by you saying constitutional law. It was just an unfortunate coincidence. Can I ask you a question that may or may not be fair because it may not be at the forefront of your mind? But um, it does this extremely interesting work, and I enjoyed enormously your presentation. Does it have... Any implications for Bougainville? Um, and I ask you that question not, not because I'm assuming that Nauru and Bougainville are the same. I'm, I'm sure I subscribe to the same idea of diversity and local ownership that you do. But because there are two aspects of your work that might have a bit particular bearing on it, and there may be others as well, one is the question whether at the point uh, a country seeks uh, international recognition as a sovereign state, um, how much wriggle room does it have to escape state forms and to escape bureaucracy? And it's not just international recognition, it's also, you know, the uh, support and assistance and blah, blah, blah that uh, such a state might need, uh, at least in the early years. And the second question, uh, the second aspect of the potential Bougainville experience um, is to what extent in the contemporary world built around the state system, um, is it possible to um, think of a way of governing a community in a state like Nauru or, for that matter, like Bougainville that doesn't become overwhelmed by statist um, characteristics and that actually provides a way of living that is the community is comfortable with? Thanks, Cheryl. I, 
I've recently started uh, reading a lot more of the case law that's been coming out um, around Bougainville, around Bougainville Copper, around the ownership of the Panguna mine, and I think that there are really, really strong parallels in terms of the size of the community, the history of the community and the role of the mine in, in um, the political struggles of that community. Um, in terms of your first question, I don't think there is a way out. I think that if sovereign statehood is the form that is required for recognition of political independence, then that comes with a, a form of disciplining of community that is leaves very little wriggle room, to use your phrase. I, um, I think that that reality has been borne out in terms of kind of subnational forms of self-determination that have attempted to uh, instantiate some alternative form of, of communal authority, which have just, I mean, there are some examples. I know Kirsty Gover is here. You can probably point to better examples where there has been some um, success at the subnational level of uh, realising forms of political authority that aren't sovereign statehood but I think that once the sovereign state form is taken as the template then it, it's very hard to imagine a community being able to realise a form of power relation that isn't already completely predetermined. I, I'm, I struggle to see how that would be possible. That's not to say that it isn't. Um, mm -hmm. It might just be that, you know, I'm... I've been trained in a particular form of law and of constitutionalism that might just make it too hard for me to understand. And I think that this is the point at which international law and constitutional law really need to be talking more to each other, particularly around issues of decolonisation. I think that that conversation isn't had enough. Um, even in the same building, it's possible to have people working on issues that are really parallel and not sharing that information. And um, that to me is a conversation that I think needs to be had and the Pacific I think offers some of the best opportunity to open that conversation. Yeah, in terms of um, your second question, I think I may have um, done the best I can at, at answering yeah, sure. that. I, um, I just hesitate to think that the templates are there uh, or that the templates originate with um, forms of authority that we always already recognise as being valid. I think that it would require um, much more seeking of the right to determine what is a valid form of authority and what isn't um, to allow some space for something else to generate successfully. That's, That's a great answer. I mean, it makes me think, Cheryl, of the initiative that you and Gary Simpson launched long ago at the Melbourne Law School to try and think public law together in its national and international forms. And I know that uh, that's a legacy that we uh, have inherited from you, but it's probably not one that we have taken up enough in intellectual terms, because particularly from the Global South, that question of how the constitutional and the international are two sides of exactly the same coin are um, really underexplored. And one of the things that's terrific about your book, Kate, is that you refuse, because you don't start with the conceptual apparatus of international law, you refuse the essentially positivistic distinctions that trap people in reenacting re its categories. And so you do that with public and private and economic and political and uh, constitutional and international. And that's another aspect of the book that I think is extremely heuristically useful for those who want to read it to read about how you've done what you've done rather than what you've done exactly. So um, we've I won't want I don't want to go on for too much longer because I'm conscious that this is also a launch. So if I think there's one question from James and then I want to ask you one more question, Kate, and then we might uh, officially launch the book with the champagne across the bow in a moment, although I have neither bow nor champagne. But <laughs> James, do you want to ask your question, please? Sure thing. Thank you. I mean, well, the, the, the main thing I wanted to say is just congratulations, Kate. Um, you know, it's an amazing book and uh, hearing you talk about it has been a pleasure over a number of years. Um, but I just wondered if I could invite you to to say a few words about your forthcoming project or the, the one that's currently underway about deep sea and space mining and to um, however you see fit, like 
uh, join some dots uh, and open up that next uh, stage in your in your in your research. Thanks, James. I um I always enjoy explaining this link because I think it really baffles people um, how I got from Nauru to space. But to me, the um the yeah, the dots are actually there to be joined very, very readily. I mean, the most obvious answer is that it, it, the conclusion of the book points towards the current project. I, in the conclusion of the book, um, I look at some of the current forms of potential revenue that the Republic of Nauru is investigating, and one is a partnership with a deep sea mining company, Deep Green, and that, to me, uh really brought the conversation full circle. Nauru was, has essentially, uh, in certain circumstances, granted forms of its public authority and its public representation to corporate officials. The CEO of Deep Green sits in the International Seabed Authority in Nauru's chair. So that link, um, that gestured towards the way in which current resource struggles around natural resources beyond national jurisdiction in the international seabed, in space and in Antarctica, although Antarctica is obviously a very, very specific framework, uh, have been presaged in some ways by the struggles in the 1880s. I was seeing parallels in that period, the 1870s, 1880s, and what's occurring now around the um, attempts of corporations to have their claims in natural resources outside sovereign jurisdiction recognised as proprietary uh, within a domestic jurisdiction and then watching what, what occurs after that. And that's, that in the 1880s gave rise to the protectorate regime. The protectorate regime proved to be completely unstable and 30 years later there was a world war. So I'm interested in drawing out some of the um, the lessons that history might have to offer on what options are on the table at the moment for working out uh, the legal regimes under which natural resources are going to be allocated in these areas over um, the next couple of decades. It worries me very, very much. I'm worried that there isn't more of a public awareness about what's going on in the international seabed um, what's going on with respect to space resources and what's going on with respect to Antarctica. It worries me that the uh, diplomatic agenda has been so crowded in the last couple of years that there just isn't bandwidth for people to be paying attention to that and that lack of attention has been exploited by people with extreme amounts of capital who are looking ahead to their position over the next 30 or 40 years. Uh, so that's what I'm paying attention to now. Um, the other the other connection between that period um, in the 1880s and the one that uh, is occurring now is the relationship between property and jurisdiction. I'm quite interested in the way that proprietary claims, essentially when they're made outside of outside of a recognized jurisdictional order, require the creation of a jurisdictional order around them. And that's actually what's happening with the International Seabed Authority and it's starting to occur with space. There have been, even though the status of property in international law in space resources is as, as yet uncertain, there have been moves to recognise space resources in domestic jurisdiction. And once that happens, there is a train of events that is set in train that worries me as to um, where we're going um, from here. So... The links to me are both direct, they arise from Nauru and watching what Nauru has been trying to do um, or what perhaps more accurately corporations have been trying to do with Nauru and um, also seeing parallels in the way that private proprietary claims are starting to be made in areas where the actual fundamental jurisdictional authority is still uncertain and that uh, is a very interesting legal question to me. Thank you, Kate. That's uh, extremely salutary, actually, and I'm sure we're going to have many corpor uh, corporations about conversations, conversations about corporations in the months to come. And I would recommend to anybody 
uh, listening to this as a podcast that after you read International Status in the Shadow of Empire, that you follow Kate Storr and her work on um, the question of resources in the deep seabed and in space. The other thing that um, is really wonderful about the book, Kate, which I'm not going to ask you about now, but I may call you back to do a skills circle on this question is the craft of writing, because really it's a very beautiful book and it's a beautifully written book. It's beautiful to read. And as your PhD, former PhD supervisor, I know how painstaking you are as a writer. And I think there are uh, many things you could teach us about the way that you wield that craft. But I'm going to uh, stop the launch there and hand over to Sean McVeigh to um, break the bottle over the bow, as it were. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Kate. Thank you, everybody, for turning up. Um, in the absence of all physical existence, I simply performatively declare this book launched. And I hope all who read the book enjoy it as much as uh, we have uh, enjoyed its production over the years. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you may you, all Kate. raise your icons. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. It's um, it's unusual. I mean, the book was published in September 2020, but it does feel like this is an extension of that year and it's it's been in a strange limbo. So I'm really, really glad to have this opportunity to talk about it with you all. This community has meant uh, a lot to me. It contributed an awful lot to the writing of the work and I'm very grateful to all of you for being here, um, but also to all of you who have spent, you know, these, these last sort of five or seven years um, with me through this process, um, yeah, I think that, that that time has become even more valuable to me in hindsight. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for being part of the ILA community. You've been listening to the ILA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.